0: The next couple of weeks, we're going to take a break from the Gospel of John, okay, just for about four weeks, and we're going to look at four important truths of the Christian life, and for the last couple of weeks, I've been thinking about what they should be, and here they are. This morning, the fear of the Lord, okay, the fear of the Lord. Something you don't talk or hear much about is the fear of the Lord. The second one is the blessing of discipline, okay, from self-discipline to church discipline and personal disciplines, We're, we're going to talk about... Discipline. Why? Because we have the word discipline from the word disciple, okay? To be a disciple means there's disciplines. I want to put that in the context of grace and put that in the context of love. And so that's that's going to be next week. And then the secret of contentment. We live in a very discontented society, and uh it behooves us to, to live as lights in this world. That means to live a life of contentment. And then finally, hand, how to handle controversy. Not that any of that's going on. But uh no, how how do we as Christians develop uh handle controversy in relationships in the church, outside the church, maybe at work? And so that's gonna be four weeks from now. And then we'll get back in into chapter eight of John's gospel. But for right now, I want you to stand. I'm gonna read just two verses this morning, Proverbs one seven and nine ten. Proverbs one seven and nine ten. Chapter 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And then chapter 9 of Proverbs, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Let's pray. Father in heaven, the fear of the Lord is a good and holy thing. It is a gift from you. You impart this healthy, proper fear into the hearts of those you've made alive unto Jesus Christ. It is a fear that we take with us every day. It is a fear of a child loving and respecting and reverencing his father and lord god it's a it's a it's a attitude that is so missing from the church today, and at times from my life, and Lord God, we know that you want to restore this proper fear of the Lord into our lives. And so God, I ask that through the preaching of your word, the Holy Spirit would take the truths of your word, in particular about the fear of the Lord, and instill them and write them, etch them even further and deeper upon our hearts. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. In Romans chapter 3, verse 18, Paul gives one of the most scathing indictments of all humanity, against humanity. He says this, there is no fear of God before their eyes. He's making that statement for those who openly deny Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But yet, I want to make this statement because this is really the context in which I want to give this message. It is more and more or ever increasingly true of the professing church. Are you with me? Let me quote it again. Paul says, he gives a scathing indictment against humanity. It says this, there is no fear of God before their eyes. But I think this has become more and more reflective of the church, of professing Christians. And I want to say this is due to two trends. Trend number: These two trends, that, by the way, are intertwined and come together. They intersect one another, and they actually complement each other. Trend number one, more and more pastors do not preach the whole counsel of God. What do I mean by that? Simply this, they don't deal with the passages that deal with the wrath of God, the justice of God. Right? They, they don't deal with the holiness of God and godliness. They don't deal with repentance. They avoid talking about anything that would give people a reason to fear God. They avoid the mention of hell, sin, condemnation. Not to mention God's holiness, sovereignty, and his wrath. That's the first trend. The second trend, or the second reason why you don't, you hear this fear of God less and less amongst professing Christians, is that people don't want to hear the whole counsel of God. Not only do pastors don't want to give it, the people don't want to hear it. They do not desire sound doctrine. They want to hear that they're okay. That they are in control. That they can believe whatever they want to believe, and yet they're okay with God. That God's okay with them. That it really doesn't matter. That doctrine or what you believe really doesn't matter all that much. You're still okay with God. They don't want to hear about God being holy. All they want is a God is peace and love. They do not want a God who hates their sin. They want a teddy bear who they can cuddle up with, so to speak. OK? So these pastors and these people, they feed on one another. They, these people fill pulpit committees, and then they gather to them pastors or teachers who will give them what they want to hear, not what they need to hear. Does that make sense? And we are not to be surprised at this, because so I want to read something to you. Second Timothy. Is clear on this. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, Paul writing to Timothy, the pastor at Ephesus, the church there, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is the judge of the living and the dead. Notice he doesn't say the savior of those who believe. He, he, what's he referencing here? Well, you wouldn't expect this, but he's saying that. Who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. What does that mean? It means whether they want to hear it or not. You do not change the message. You preach the whole counsel of God. You do it because you're doing it for the Father. You're not doing it because of what they want, but what they need. And what will it do? It will reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. And here he says this, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And, verse 4, the sentence is not done. They will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths, that which is false. So, here's the question What is the fear of the Lord? What is the fear of the Lord? Well, first, we must understand that the Bible distinguishes between two kinds of fear. There's two kinds of fear. Let me describe the first one. I want to get that one kind of out of the way because I really want to address the second one. The first is a fear that shrinks back from God. It's a holy terror. Are you with me? It, it's, it turns from him in terror. This fear is a pagan fear it's an unbelieving fear it's 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 what the unbelievers it's what's awaiting the unbeliever let me put it like that because a lot of believers they go like well I have no reason to fear God because I don't believe there is a God okay so this is something that they might not experience now but it's awaiting them at judgment does that make sense it awaits the unbeliever at judgment the gospel does not create this kind of fear Actually, the gospel casts this kind of fear away and replaces it with the second one we're going to talk about this morning. In other words, this fear awaits those who do not belong to Christ. They do not realize the trouble that they are in, but it awaits them nonetheless. Listen to this. Hebrews 10.27 says of those who go on sin willingly, sinfully, sinning willfully, it says this, quote, they should not They should expect a terrifying judgment and a fury of fire that will consume them. The unbeliever who rejects Christ, that is their expectation. What's awaiting them is a judgment. And when that judgment comes, this holy terror is going to come upon them. This person is all alone at judgment. They are all they have. They have no one to turn to when God judges them. They're going to be by themselves before a holy God, and they're going to be in absolute fear and terror. We as Christians understand this. We understand this fear. We understand this dread that awaits them. And so we lovingly warn them of this fear that's going to consume them and come upon them. And we tell them of the Christ, the only one who can lift this dread from them. Amen. I want to read to you also first John. This is a beautiful picture in first John chapter four. Listen to these words. Verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. They're united. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is being perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Our confidence comes from Christ. We don't await this terror, this fear. The unbeliever does. But we will approach judgment day with confidence. Amen? Who's your confidence, folks? Christ. Because as he is, so are we in this world. Verse 18, listen to these words. There is no fear in love. There is no condemning fear. There's no wrath fear of the God, the wrath of God in love, but perfect love casts that kind of fear. What kind? Notice what it says, because fear involves punishment. When you go before the throne of God as a believer, you have no punishment to fear. Amen? Why? Because Christ bore your punishment on the cross himself. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. The one who fears punishment before a holy God is not being perfected in love right now. Wow. That is the first kind of fear. The one that will shrink back back in holy fear and dread of the judgment of God, knowing that they have no way out because they're going to be standing there all alone before a holy God, having no one to turn to, but the Christian turns to Christ himself. Amen? So what's the other fear? Well, it's a new fear. It's a new fear that comes when one is born again. It is for the believer. It. it it, it's it's like a new attitude towards God. Okay? You're you're recreated in Christ for this new attitude. And as we just read, it comes from his love. This love casts out the old fear, the fear of condemnation, the fear of punishment, but it's replacing with it's replaced with a new type or kind of fear. That's why you no longer shrink back. That's why we are called to boldly go before the throne of grace. What's the point? The gospel of Jesus Christ makes all the difference in the world. It's an eternal difference. It's an infinite difference. And so because of Christ, we no longer shrink back and cower before God. However, it does not mean that there is no sense in which the Christian is to fear God because there is. You see, if you get nothing else, get this. The gospel is the difference between being afraid of God and fearing God. The gospel is the difference between being afraid of God and fearing God. In, in, in Christ, one takes on this new kind of fear. It's a fear that is becoming more and more absent from churches today. And remember I talked about pastors? Okay, it's not just that some avoid talking about the wrath and hell of God. They they avoid the sovereignty of God, but it's not just they avoid that, but they replace it with other things. It's not that they just avoid talking about repentance and future judgment, but they replace it with feel-good theology, with prosperity, driven, live-your-life-now counterfeits of the gospel that has infiltrated the church and watered it down to where you got a lot of people who call themselves Christians no longer talking about the wholesomeness of the fear of God. I would say one reason why is the lack or the absence of expository preaching. Why am I so sold into it? It's because of this. And what I mean by expository preaching, what we mean here is verse by verse or passage by passage going through a book, going through the Bible. The reason, one of the main reasons, there's a lot of them, but one is this, why we do that. It forces me or whoever's preaching to deal with all the topics that are there, right? And so we can't just hop, skip around and pick what we want and dilly-dally around with it, amen? The whole, all of Scripture is inspired. All of Scripture is profitable. Even the tough portions that talk about hell, the wrath of God, and the judgment to come, Right? So that is a huge reason why. So, what is this new fear that comes into our lives when we trust Christ? Let me describe it in many ways up front. It can be described as a teachable humility. A humbleness. Or a willingness to do God's will. When you're born again, you've got this new willingness. You're a new creature in Christ. And this fear, this awe, this respect, this reverence has with it a willingness to say, okay, God, I'm getting anywhere because I really desire to do what it says. It might not be easy, but that's okay. It might be difficult to apply, but I'm still going to try. It can all also be described by the word repentance. Or how about this desire to turn away from evil? How many people do you know that call themselves Christians but have no desire to turn from evil? Wow. That's a lack of the fear of the Lord. It's also described as reverence and awe of God. Not a shallow and glib superficial acknowledgement of God. Anybody can go to a church on a Sunday morning and acknowledge that God exists and sing some songs. But you know what the key to this hour is? You're worshiping God during the week. It's all preparatory. Coming together as a body corporately to worship God with one voice, with one heart. It can also be described as fear of the Lord. It can be described as total dependence upon God. It stays low before him in his presence. Here's another one. The fear of the Lord is always aware that I'm living before the face of God. It's an awareness that I'm always living before God himself, that I can't do anything without his notice. Wow. How about this? I read this. Let me quote: you. It is a fear that realizes that I am not the measure, but the measured that I am not the giver, but the recipient. The fear of the Lord realizes that Jesus Christ is the universe's greatest expert in all human things, not me. Oh, if we all had that attitude, amen? This God-given fear, this awe and adoration and reverence is rooted, number one, in God's glory. Write that down. This, this fear of the Lord is rooted, it's embedded in who God is. By glory, we mean the sum of his attributes, the sum of his perfections. Just think, every attribute, every perfection of God is infinite and eternal. It's infinite and eternal. So you talk about the sovereignty of God, it's infinite. You talk about the love of God, the wrath of God, the justice of God. Pick a perfection of God, pick an attribute, and it is infinite and eternal is a God to be feared, respected, and revered. His attributes are the basis of our awe and our wonder. We're going to get more practical in just a minute. Hang on there. His his character is the foundation of our respect and our reverence. It's because we fear God and fear the Lord that we are so a little picky with the music that we sing, as Ron brings up. That's why we want to be profoundly biblical in all things, because God is holy, 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 right? Right. Think of God like a solar eclipse for a moment. We had one earlier this year. Was it in the spring? Right? What you have to do? I think it went through the country and through South Carolina. If you want to get the full effect of it, you just had to go south a little bit. And we were told, though, even at the height of the eclipse, what? You still had to wear special glasses. You still had to. Why? Why? Because the ultraviolet rays would damage your eyes, even at the height of the full eclipse of the sun. The point is this. Though an eclipse covers the sun in its luster, and its luminosity momentarily, it did not cover up the sun's power to hurt your eyes. Even when it was eclipsed, this spectacular natural event was part of God's created order and it illustrates his glory. It reminds me of Romans one twenty, which says this, listen to these words. For since the creation of the world, the invisible attributes... His eternal power and divine nature have clearly been seen, being understood through what has been made. God designed a solar and lunar, all the eclipses to reveal, to magnify, to reflect the creator, who he is. The God who created the eclipse is the God to be feared. Romans one twenty. It's also illustrated in Exodus chapter 33. Write down Exodus chapter 33. You're familiar with this account of Moses. Let me just read it to you. The Lord said to Moses in chapter 33 of Exodus verse 17, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken. For you have found favor in my sight and I have known you by name. That's God talking to Moses. Then Moses responds and says, I pray you show me your glory. Show me your glory. Show me your glory. I don't think Moses had a clue what he was asking. Or he did not understand what the effects would be if God showed him all his glory. Verse 19, and God said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. And and notice he said, all my goodness, not all my glory. Maybe there's a play on words there. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to you, whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he also said, God is, in verse 20, you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. In other words, I'm not going to show you all my glory. Why? Because you cannot handle it. It would consume you. You would die. Then God, being gracious, said this in verse 21. Then the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock and it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Notice God's hand is covering the full effect of his glory so that Moses would live. Talk about grace right there. Talk about mercy. God's doing this. He didn't say, now Moses, cover your eyes. Hide behind her. He goes, no, I will cover you. My hand will cover you. Folks, it's all about what God does. And uh, it will come about while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. He put him in the cleft of the rock. I think because Moses would be so stunned, he wouldn't be able to move. So God had to say, i got to get you behind the cleft of the rock, number one. And number two, my hand's going to cover Because Moses, once I start this, you're going to be numb. You're going to be like John in Revelation chapter 1. What happened to John in his vision? He fell as a dead man. What does that mean? He couldn't, the fear of the Lord, he he couldn't move. Because God is infinitely stunning and overwhelming. Verse 23, then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. You could not withstand the full effect of my glory, my attributes. When my sum of my attributes are all put together, you'd be like a dead man. We hear about this in Isaiah, who in the presence of the Holy One said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Notice the effect that the glory of God has on those who, who had these special revelations like Moses and John and Isaiah. They didn't walk away going, oh, we skipped through the lilies. We had a great time. No. The fear of the Lord consumed them. It was awesome. So the fear of the Lord that is spoken of throughout the Old and New Testament is rooted in the glory of God. I want to spend the next couple of hours, in case you're not listening. I want to talk about the practical nature of God's glory. Excuse me, the practical nature of the fear of the Lord. And here's what I've done. I went back to a concordance, through the Old and New Testament, and just walked my way through the couple hundred times the fear of the Lord is mentioned in the Bible. Now, we're not going to go all that. I selected like a dozen. Okay. But there's a lot of them. And what, here's what caught my attention. What they're associated, the fear of the Lord, that phrase is associated with. And it's so practical because it's meant to have a life-changing effect on the believer. That's the point. This fear of the Lord is to have a life-changing, an ongoing, life-changing effect upon the child of God. So let's begin with the first one. The fear of the Lord is, number one, associated with our keeping his commandments. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 29. Listen to this. Verse 29, oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always. There's the association there with fear of the Lord and obeying his commands. So if you have a church full of people who do not fear the Lord, those people are going to not be interested in keeping his commandments. There's association right there. That it may be well with them and with their sons forever. Then you can go to chapter 6, verse 2 of Deuteronomy. So that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God. There's the phrase again in chapter 6. And notice what verse 1 says. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments with the Lord our God has commanded me to teach you that you might do them in the land where you are going to possess it, the land that you're going over to possess. And then he says this, I, I want you, out of fear of the Lord, to teach your children and your grandchildren so that they too might fear the Lord, to keep all his statutes and his commandments all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Wow. So what is the basis of child training? A respect, an awe, a reverence for God. Do our children see that awe in our lives? Do they see that respect and that reverence flowing from us, not only in words but by our actions? Do our children see it by our obedience to the word of God? Here's another one. Walking in His ways. The fear of the Lord is associated with walking in the ways of God. Chapter 8 verse 6. Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in His ways. And here's the last phrase. And to fear Him. There it is. So all I did was go through a bunch of verses, a bunch of passages. That that had to fear the Lord and see what it was associated with. So far, it's keeping his commandments and it's walking in his ways. So why do we want to walk in his ways? Because I'm in awe of God. I reverence him and respect him. What about Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12? This will be number three. I'm going to read it first, however. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? But to there it is, fear the Lord. Your God to walk in all his ways, we've already seen that one previously, and love him. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Are you getting this, folks? Here you have the fear of the Lord and, and loving him, married now. You see that? They're married. They're, they're, they're part of a whole. We're, we're going to come back to that at the very end of the sermon. We're going to wrap it up with this. So number three is to love him. Oh, what's next? And to serve the Lord, our service of one another, or our serving him should be out of a fear for him, a respect and awe. He says, with all your heart and with all your soul, verse 13, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. Here's another one. Deuteronomy, at the very end of Deuteronomy, chapter 31. Deuteronomy, chapter 31, verse 12 assemble the people. There's corporate worship back in the Old Testament, okay? Assemble the people, the men and the women and children and the alien who is in your town, even the visitor who's visiting around, get them together. Why? So that, there's the purpose statement, you may hear and learn and, here's the phrase again, fear the Lord your God. You know, if you don't fear the Lord your God, you're not going to want to hear him or listen to him. You're not going to care what he has to say. You see the association here? And be careful to observe all the words of his law. Wow. Here's another association. The fear of the Lord with worship. Oh. Let's go to Psalm chapter 2. Verse 11. Listen to this. Worship the Lord with, here's the word now, New American Standard says reverence. Worship the Lord with fear. Worship the Lord out of respect and out of awe for who He is. Not with glibness. Not, 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 not like casual. Worship is not a casual event. How many churches have turned worship into just a casual event? It's not an event. It's the prostration of a heart. Bowing before a holy God with reverence. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Understand what God did in Christ so that he would also receive your worship. Your worship is not received apart from Christ. It's only in and through and by Christ alone that your worship is what? Acceptable to him. He's the foundation, the root of our worship. Verse 12, do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. Wow. Write down Hebrews 12 when it comes to worship as well. Hebrews 12, it says this, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, oh, the kingdom of heaven cannot be shaken, Let us show gratitude by which we offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. There's that fear of the Lord again, using reverence and awe. But he's not done. The sentence is not over. Listen to these last words. For our God is a consuming fire. How was the last time you heard a sermon here on God is a consuming fire? That gets me going here. You know, you, you hear about old hell fire and brimstone preaching. It might make you uncomfortable, but there is truth to it when it sticks to the Word of God. How about number seven? The fear of the Lord is associated with our praise, not only our worship, but our praise. Psalm twenty-two, twenty-three. 23. We turn there quickly. Psalm twenty-two, twenty-three. 23. You who fear the Lord, praise him. Well, that's pretty point blank. It's, it's simple, isn't it? So we praise him out of a fear for him, out of awe, out of respect, out of reverence. You who fear the Lord, praise him. Revelation 19. Oh, Revelation 19.5. Let's get there real quick. Listen to these words. And a voice from heaven, excuse me, and a voice came from the throne saying, give praise to our God, all you his bond servants." And here's the other description of them. You who fear him. Wow. Isn't that something? When's the last time you've equated love with the fear of the Lord? When's the last time we equated worship with the fear of the Lord or praise with the fear of the Lord? But God does. God does. What about the association of fear of the Lord with keeping away from evil? Proverbs 16, 6. And by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. The reason why you have professing Christians running headlong to evil is because they don't fear the Lord. They didn't hear that as maybe part of the gospel. Part of the gospel is judgment is coming. Part of the gospel is if you don't trust Christ, you're going to hell. That's part of the good news. The good news is nothing without talking about the bad news, beloved. And the Bible is full of both, back and forth, back and forth. The bad news of the sin nature, the bad news of of a fallen creation, but it's always flanked by the grace, the good news of Jesus Christ. But you cannot share the good news of Jesus Christ without including the bad news of sin and the need of the Savior. If all we're doing is preaching Jesus loves you, this I know for the Bible tells you so, that's only part of the truth. And so we have people entering the church without the fear of the Lord, without an awe, without a reverence, without this respect that leads to the Christian life, that leads to sanctification. Here's another one. The association with the fear of the Lord with the Word of God. The fear of the Lord is associated with the Word of God. Psalm one nineteen. Psalm one nineteen. I gotta get to it. I I got all these things here. Psalm one nineteen, verse thirty eight. I've used this before. You 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 you'll be familiar with this. Establish your word to your servant. Why? What's the point? Here it is. Are you listening? As that which produces reverence for thee. When your diet is consistently the word of God, it will produce in your heart and soul a reverence and awe and a, a, a respect for God. Right? Right? establish your word. That's why we memorize it. That's why we study it. That's why we read it. That's why we have devotions. That's how you establish. You eat it. You eat It's your diet. It's your spiritual diet. That's how you establish God's word to yourself as his servant. And you know that it will produce, it will accumulate and produce more and more a reverence and respect and awe of God in your heart. That's why we're in God's word. Here's another one. The association of the fear of the Lord with sanctification. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Let me read this to you. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness, there's the phrase, in the fear of the of God. Wow. This echoes the priests who are to bring God's sacrifices. This is what it echoes. The picture here comes from chapter 6 as a priest offering a sacrifice in the temple. Your body is now the temple. And we now, as priests in the new covenant, we offer ourselves. That's the picture that's going on here in chapter 7, verse 1. And as the priest, the high priest, would enter into the Holy of Holies out of fear and trembling, bringing an offering a sacrifice to God in his presence. That's what Paul's saying. That's the picture I want you to have when it comes to setting yourself apart for God's use. Peter calls us priest, the priesthood of the believer. In the context, notice it's in the fear of the Lord, the last phrase. He's expounding on what it means to be a temple of God. And it just echoes the Old Testament priests who would go into the temple and offer a sacrifice. But today, according to Romans 12:1 and 2, we are the sacrifice. We bring ourselves. Oh, God, out of respect and awe for you this morning, I present myself to you for this day. You see that? That's what a quiet time is right there in a nutshell, isn't it? Wow. In other words, it's about conducting our lives with a measure of respect for our king, presenting ourselves and our Bodies as holy as unto the Lord. It's the conviction, the realization that we are living before the face of God every moment of the day. Whatever the room you're in, the bathroom, the bedroom, the kitchen, at work, the car, and a parking place, and a mall, and a store, you're always living before the face of God because you're his child. Here's another one. The association of the fear of the Lord with fellowship and love for one another. Ah, that one just kind of overwhelmed me there. Go to Ephesians chapter five, if you'd like, or just write that down. I will go to it. Ephesians chapter five, verse 21. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. But we can back up to verse 15. Therefore, be careful how you walk. That's what is on Paul's mind. How do you walk? How you behave? How you conduct yourself? That's what the word walk means. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making most of your time. That means redeem the time. Use it for Christ. Redeem it. Why? Because look at the days we're living in. They're evil. So then don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Notice the proverbial language there, the fool. The fool. You know, don't be foolish, but be wise. It sounds like he's been in Proverbs a little bit, right? And then he gives an illustration. You know, if you get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Getting drunk with wine is an absolute waste of time. It's foolishness. But rather concentrate on filling yourself with that which honors Christ, being filled with the Spirit. And it's going to affect how you talk to one another, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your hearts to the Lord. Always giving thanks for the things in which the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, God, even the Father, and be subject to one another. Again, it's talking about fellowship there, talking about unity, talking about how we approach one another, and it's all in the fear of Christ. How practical is the fear of the Lord? It's tremendously practical. How about it? Is sweet and satisfying fear? Psalm thirty-four. 8 through 11 talks about how sweet the fear of the Lord is. Psalm 34, verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. You taste him, and once you taste him, you now take refuge in him. Notice the next phrase, oh, fear the Lord. Oh, really? Taste, take refuge, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For to those who fear him, there is no want. What does it mean? You're satisfied. You taste him. You take refuge in him. Refuge in him, why? Because he satisfies your soul and you park with him and you need no one else. He's your satisfaction. Question, how do I know that? Because I have an awe and a reference and respect a fear for him. Those who do not have the fear of the Lord will go find satisfaction somewhere else. That's how you know. Finally, here's the last one. The fear of the Lord frees us from all other fears. The fear of the Lord frees us from all other fears. And I get this from Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 38 and 39. We could back up to 31, but I won't for the sake of time. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through whom who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death sees the things we're no longer afraid of when we fear the Lord. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor what anybody can do to me, nor things present, nor things to come, that the future, I'm not afraid of. Those things to come, I'm not afraid of the future, what it beholds, because I respect and am awe of God, and I know he holds my future. It's the idea nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Wow. You know, whether we admit it or not, we are people that are afraid. That's something we share as Christians with unbelievers. We kind of ebb and flow a little bit with this fear, don't we? If we're really brutally honest, be anxious for nothing. Don't be afraid of anything because God's in control. But We're at the cusp of that sometimes, or sometimes we even fail as believers. We get afraid. Pride tells me not to be afraid. Pride tells me to cover up my fear, okay? So i got to deal with that. But the reality is there are times I'm afraid. In spite of all the medical advances, all the security systems, all the organic foods, the endless access of information on the website, which sometimes will make you crazy. Well, i got this pain. You get on there and you see that it might cause cancer. Oh, no, I'm dying, you know. But there's a hundred other things it could result into you know all those things are our fingertips We are people who often walk in fear the world always does, even though pride tells them not to admit it or to show it. they've covered up we're good at covering up okay uh we're we're good at being afraid of death and disease, the c word cancer, afraid of failure. The fear of loss, the fear of job loss. i wrote a bunch down. The fear of the future, the fear of other men, the fear of losing control. Wow, as if, that's a myth that we're in control. Even when we are, it still is susceptible to the control of the sovereignty of God. But here's one of the ways we try to deal with these fears is by being in control. When we try to be, we try to control people. Okay, that's how we try to maintain control of my life is by controlling those close around me so that they make my life more comfortable. Okay, but they don't stick to our plan. We try to control circumstances and trials show up. Oh, we try to control our future and yet we end up dying. You know what the antidote to all that is? The fear of the Lord. And we just went through the Old and New Testament at least a dozen practical ways in which we show that we are in awe and reverence and respect of God. So it's very practical. Let me wrap up this sermon with the Bible's teaching on the fear of the Lord with a a, uh, a language of adoption. I think it's going to summarize it. It's going to put it together. Ephesians chapter 2. No, chapter 1. Verses, I think, 4 and 5 I have here in my notes. Let me get there. Ephesians chapter 1, it says, in love, he predestined us to adoption. In love, he predestined us to adoption. We learn that love was a motivating factor in him adopting us. And yet we've learned this morning that we are supposed to fear him. So the question is, can these two truths, the love of God and the fear of the Lord, coexist and complement one another? And the answer is, resoundingly, yes. And it's found in the language of adoption. We adopted our daughter, Sarah, our youngest, right? The reason why we adopted her is because we love her. Okay, are you with me? Okay. Now, like all children it doesn't mean that she should not have a proper fear and respect for her parents does it like all children adoption or not children are called to have a reverence and respect a healthy proper fear towards their parents Well, you don't talk about it you don't even hear the fear word today do you she knows our ways she after a time sarah began to know our ways she she knows what pleased us and what displeased us. She could hear the joy or the frustration in my voice. She could see on my face whether I am pleased or displeased. Yet she knew no matter what, we would not unadopt her. She was secure. But because of our love for her, we would often discipline her. She knew both the gravity of our love, but the gravity of our responsibility to train her, to develop her, to guide her, to form her character and her decision-making. She understood both responsibilities. She understood after time how these two, the love and fear, would come together. So it is with God. So it is with God. He is to be loved and feared. His glory demands it. We as parents fail. We have failed, right? You're a perfect parent in this room? No way. But here's the thing. God's never failed. And so I love this imagery, this language of adoption, which brings the love of God together with the fear of the Lord, united in our hearts. His glory demands it, and our lives are to reflect it. We are not to shy away from it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning. Thank you for God revealing to us. You've revealed this. All Scripture is inspired, and there are at least a couple hundred references to the fear of the Lord, both in the fear of dread, but for your children, and particularly the fear of respect in awe, amazement, in reverence. Oh God, I pray that as we are in your word weekly and on Sundays, that reverence and respect would just produce seeds that would would flower and flourish in our hearts and result in sanctification and obedience to your commands, loving one another and all these Practical ways of our praise, a deeper worship, or a more meaningful one. That it would result in a great, a greater desire to keep away from evil. And that we would learn to be more satisfied in you. And oh no, Lord God, the, the fear of the Lord would cast out all other fears that plague sinful humanity. Oh, Lord God, we are called not just to fear, not to fear the one who can harm our bodies, but the one who can destroy our bodies and is also in control of the destiny of our souls. And the only one is you. Father, Dad, we love you. Thank you for adopting us. Continue sanctifying us. Continue sanctifying producing a love for Christ in us, continue setting us apart from this world, making us different for your glory, to show a lost and fallen world the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen.